Uh, we find customer feedback really useful for the small improvements and the incremental improvements. But to develop big new products or really significantly different features, you need to base this on your strategy. But of course, we did neglect the infrastructure side and the technical debt side. We've had to respond to that, especially in the last six months, because we went into lockdown, our traffic increased by a thousand percent. And all of a sudden we realized we didn't have the infrastructure or the kind of testing and reliability measures in place to deal with this. My name is Kimershan Naidu, and I'm one of the co-founders and CTO of Unibuddy. This is Code Story, a podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noel Laphart, and today how Kimishin Naidu created a product to help prospecting students connect with peers to gain university insight. All this and more on Code Story. Kimishon Naidu grew up in a small sugarcane farming town on the east coast of South Africa. At 12 years old, he found an old Python book, installed Python, and started to teach himself how to code. Five years ago, he moved to London to study for his master's in computer science at UCL. He is a triathlete, completing his first triathlon last year, and is planning to complete an Olympic triathlon and eventually an Ironman race. He and his co-founder both moved from different countries to London, but didn't really know what to expect. They met up for a coffee to discuss an idea which immediately spoke to Commission, as he lived out the problem they were trying to solve when he moved to London. They decided to move forward and build a platform that embeds chat capabilities for high school and prospective university students to chat with current students at a particular school. In fact, Naidu built the first version as his dissertation project. This is the creation story of Unibuddy. Unibuddy, we're an edtech company, and our goal is to help anyone make better decisions about really important life-changing decisions. The way we started or got to this point was myself and my co-founder, we both moved to London from other countries. Um, He from Switzerland, I from South Africa. And we both moved here to study, but we didn't really know what to expect. So my, my co-founder sent me a message on LinkedIn to say, hey, I, I see you're in London. Um, I have this idea and it'll be cool if we can, we, can, we can chat about it. So we met for a coffee and when he described the idea, it really spoke to me because I really was struggling to find someone I could speak to before moving to London that had you know, studied at UCL or, or was from South Africa especially and, and you know, had to go through the same kind of experience, you know, applying for a visa, finding accommodation, all of these things. While I was studying at UCL, I basically built the first version of Unibuddy, which is a platform that is embedded on a college's or university's website, and it allows high school students or prospective applicants to have an online chat with university students and current students at that university. So so built the first version actually as my master's dissertation project at UCL and um, launched it just after graduating, and then since then have been working full-time on Unibuddy for the last four years. Tell me about the MVP. 
tell me about how long it took to build and what sort of tools you used to build it. There was multiple MVPs with each pivot before we reached product to market fit. But the MVP in terms of what got us to the stage, it was three basic products. So it was a widget that is embedded on the college's website as an iframe. So a basic React app um, with chat functionality. Um, we had a dashboard for universities where they could log in as admins to manage their widget and their student ambassadors. And then we had a dashboard for student ambassadors where they could log in, create their profile and reply to messages that were sent by prospective students um, asking different questions. So it was three basic products. We built it using a Python GraphQL backend. Um, it was a single monolithic API. At that point, it was just me and one engineer. The front end was React, old React. We've always used that from day one. And we've de we deployed it initially at that stage. The fastest thing that got us up and running was Heroku on the back end, and we deployed the client apps on, on CloudFront and S3 on AWS, um, which was really cheap and easy to use. We used GraphQL because it was it was just very quick for us to develop the API and evolve it as we are trying to find the right product specs. We also used MongoDB as our database because we had no idea what our data model was going to evolve into. So we wanted that flexibility and schemalessness of it. So that's uh, that's that's sort of the high level um, stack that we used to build it. And it took how long? We started in December 2016 and launched it around February 2017. So I would say three, two to three months to have these three basic products um, fully developed. Although we did start selling it to universities months before that by uh, pitching the prototype for uh, to them, which was just a design and not an actually built product. Right. Okay. So it was like a tappable design that you were using to pitch with? Um, yeah, it wasn't even Tapple. It was more just a PowerPoint um, showing how it would look like and taking that feedback to spec out the product and build it once we realized that universities wanted this and they didn't have too many questions or changes that they wanted when we pitched the design. So in, in that process, and you kind of touched on some of this when you were talking about the tech you chose, but during that process, you had to make decisions and trade-offs in the short term in light of getting the product out there, right? Get a, getting a working MVP. Tell me about some of those decisions and trade-offs and, and how you coped with them. Often, you're basically um, dealing with speed versus reliability and scalability, so at that stage, scalability and reliability wasn't a priority. Um, we wanted to get the product to market as quickly as possible and then we'd scale it from there. So some of the trade-offs we made was we, we didn't even think about doing it as, as modular microservices, for example. Um, it was a straight-up monolith. It was small enough at the time as well, even though we knew that may not scale. At the time, microservices weren't as ubiquitous as they were now. This was about uh, four years ago, three and a half years ago. It was definitely something that was being spoken about. We also used GraphQL in a Python backend using the Flask framework that was quite immature um, at the time and, and still isn't um, as mature as, as, as other backend frameworks or API frameworks. So we did take a, a, a bit of a risk, but it just, uh, GraphQL, we found allowed us to move so quickly to develop different parts of the API without having to, to, to develop fresh endpoints as well. And lastly, we used a ORM for MongoDB. It's a library called Mongo Engine. That definitely gave us a lot of speed because ORMs give you a lot of magic behind the hood. But moving on to how we sort of coped with these decisions and how we made them work is in hindsight, 
these three decisions, we, you know, we would probably go a different way if we knew we had to scale the system and make it reliable to handle the type of traffic we deal with today. You know, the monoliths work reasonably well for two to three years. But now that we're 20 engineers, it's starting to become problematic to have like ownership of different parts of the code. And um, this is why we're, we've started moving to, to, to microservices and we have two or three of them up and running. And we're looking to define more boundaries and extract more services from it. As a middle step, we've refactored a lot of the initial monolith code, which was very entangled to, to a more three-layer backend architecture, to just separating that data layer, business logic, and that API layer to make it easier to, to move to microservices, essentially. And in terms of GraphQL, it's still very immature, and we've started to explore things like GraphQL Federation to see how we can combine multiple microservices that may use GraphQL. But we're also looking to move away from it to a more standard REST interface for our new microservices because GraphQL does have its drawbacks as well. Um, and GraphQL Federation is still very immature. So I think those are the three big ones and those are some of the things we're doing to deal with it now at this scale. So that, that kind of touches my next question on product progression. In that next step, so you've progressed the product from the MVP, you're starting to look at two to three years down the road, how do we make this thing run and scale? How do you build your roadmap? How do you figure out what's the next most important thing to build in the product? For a long time, something we've been lacking is product strategy. We, we basically went the first three years without that uh, person that has um, a huge amount of product strategy experience. But recently, about three months ago, we had a VP of product join us. And that's really helped us to come up with a, with, with a, with a product strategy for the next 18 months. We develop our roadmap based on a combination of product strategy and customer feedback. Uh, we find customer feedback really useful for the small improvements and the incremental improvements. But to develop big new products or really significantly different features, you need to base this on your strategy and have a goal of what problem you want to solve going forward. So right now, our 18-month roadmap is based on, on, on this product strategy and the smaller product improvements are, are based on customer feedback. And we have a lot of stakeholders. We have current students, we have the colleges themselves, we have prospective students, and we've also got internal stakeholders like partnerships and, and marketing and sales and CS. We combine all these things, but the key driver is the five-year strategy and the 18-month strategy. So let's switch over to team, your team. What I'm looking for is, what did you look for in these people to indicate they were the winning horses to join Unibuddy? Early on, when we when we started um, growing our engineering team, we didn't have a lot of choice. We had to track talent based on on equity. We couldn't compete on big companies on a salary level because we were pre-Series A. So we focused on looking for engineers that were really passionate about what we do and the industry because they were they were basically joining us because they would have ownership, they would have equity, and they could help us go to to the next level and they will see the rewards of that. So we hired a, a lot of engineers that experienced the problem we're trying to solve. So they were either recently students um, or had been students and they, they understood the problem. And uh, we, we look for potentials. Oh, the first engineers weren't you know engineers with 15, 20 years experience, but they were either graduates or recent graduates that had a lot of potential in terms of what they had built in their spare time, 
what kind of problem solving ability they had. So we focused a lot of problem solving in the interviews and, and we went for that type of profile. So that's a strategy we kind of had to use because of the constraint of resources we had. Let's talk about scalability. So you, you built this in the beginning, perhaps not in a microservice type architecture, but you did build it thinking about scalability a little bit, perhaps in a different way. You said you used, you know, maybe Mongo or GraphQL so that you could use unconstrained, essentially data models. And so you didn't really know what you were going to land on from a data model standpoint. So talk about that progression. So you started out in one way, you started out with the monolith, and now you're moving to microservices. What tripped your thinking on how you approached scalability? So one is scalability with regards to your team size. And the second is scalability with regards to your traffic and usage. Microservices, a lot of that is about scalability with the team. We found a monolith worked fine for five engineers, 10 engineers. When you start getting to 15 and 20, like we are now, you start having a lot of bottlenecks. You're all working off the same repository. You're all deploying through the same pipeline, so you don't have independent deployability. And, and that creates a lot of inefficiencies, and you, have, and you often have engineers waiting for a, for a slot to open up so that they can get their stuff from QA to staging or staging to production. So the first trigger in terms of us needing to, to scale better and move towards microservices was actually to, to help the team become more, um, more effective and, and, and help them become more independent. So we have multiple product squads and each of these squads um, should own their own microservices and be able to deploy them independently. And that's our target. On the other hand, from a traffic perspective, there was a lot we had to do to get to where we are, and there's a lot we still have to do to get to where we want to be. The first uh, migration we had to do was to get off Heroku, which would scaled okay, but it's very expensive, and there is some some limitations um, in terms of how deep you can go into your metrics and logging and debugging and things like this. So we migrated from Heroku to AWS Fargate, which is basically involved containerizing our backend um, API and deploying it on Fargate, which allows us to automatically scale based on, on our response times and, and, and traffic. So the other day we are running 60 instances of our server and that automatically scaled with Fargate. So, so that was step one. And a lot of other um, initiatives we've done to scale includes um, introducing more caching on the backend so one of the first things you always run into is your database becomes a bottleneck and you need to take a load off your, off your database. So we were doing things like polling. We've re replaced a lot of the polling by using sockets. We're now looking to introduce a lot more caching so that we take more load of the, of the database. In fact, one of our OKRs for Q3 is to reduce the load of our, on our database by 50% by using caching and read replicas so that we, we, we take off this load from the primary node. So, so as you step out on the balcony, you look across all that you've built with Unibuddy. Um, what are you most proud of? The reason at the end of the day that, that I get up every day and I'm really motivated by this is because it, it, it helps students. And when I look at our, our dashboard and I see that, you know, almost 5 million messages have been sent on our platform and we've helped over a quarter of a million students to to find out where what's the best place for them to study and what's the best um, course for them to study that's the thing i'm the most proud of to know that without our platform maybe they would have made a different decision or they wouldn't have been able to have those questions answered they would you know not live up to their true potential so for me it's really about democratizing this access to higher education information and helping students to to make better decisions 
about their first real career choice in your life um, in terms of what do you do after high school. And that's always the number I'm the most proud of is, is how many students we've actually helped to, to, to make decisions better. Let's flip the script just a little bit. Tell me about a mistake you made along the way and how you and your team responded to it. For the majority of the first two years, two and a half years, really, we focused purely on speed. We kind of went for the Facebook motto that they initially have of move fast and break things. And that was good in the sense that it helped us to develop a lot of new product and a lot of new features. But of course, we did neglect the infrastructure side and the technical debt side. And we've had to respond to that, especially in the last six months, because we went into lockdown. Our traffic increased by a thousand percent. And all of a sudden, we realized we didn't have the infrastructure or the, the kind of testing and reliability measures in place to deal with this. So we've had to respond for this by, by really shifting our mindset more on, on quality and reliability and customer focus from speed and innovation in a way. And I think that it's a very delicate balance to get these things right. And, and what we've done is, you know, and Facebook, funnily enough, they also had to do that. They went from move fast and break things to move fast and build infrastructure as, as, as they became more mature. And I feel we're in that similar stage where we're nowhere close to as big as Facebook, obviously, but we're, we're mature enough as a company now. And we have 350 colleges and universities around the world that depend on our product where we can't just move fast and break things. And we need to think more carefully, spend more time perfecting things, making sure it scales, making sure it's reliable, making sure it's well tested and that we have the best infrastructure and observability in place to, to ensure amazing reliability. And that's, that's what we're doing right now. What's the future look like for the product and for your team? The future of our product is, is, is firstly growing vertically um, in terms of the number of colleges and universities around the world that's using it. We find that any type of college can use it, small, medium, large, specialized, international office, any department. We believe any college and university in the world should use it. So we want to grow from you know the 300 plus we are now to, to 1,000 in, in 12 to 18 months time. So that's the first step. And that's going to take us from 75,000 active users that we are now to, to over half a million active users based on increased product usage as well on a per university level. A key change or new business uh, vertical for us is going straight B2C. So we have 350 odd universities around the world that have our product embedded on their website, but we can put them all together onto one place and allow a student to talk to any of those universities on unibuddy.com. So this is the B2C play that we're really excited about. And it's like the sky scanner of colleges and universities where you could, you could just go to unibuddy.com and speak to a student in any university in the world that uses Unibuddy. So this is, this is the real big future uh, where we see it being a hub for students around the world on unibuddy.com. Who influences the way that you work? Name a you know, CEO, CTO, really, really any person. Name a person you look up to and why. The books that I've read or the kinds of thinking that, that has influenced me the most is, is around essentialism and minimalism. So the book Essentialism, for example, um, I'd say is one of the most influential books for me because I'm always looking to, to eliminate and simplify and, and reduce the cognitive load or number of things that you're dealing with. So the, the way I work is always trying to bring about more focus and more, more of an essentialist mindset. So 
I introduced OKRs to our company about three years ago, and that's because I found we were we were trying to focus on too many different things, which ends up bringing you no focus at all. And this has helped us a lot, and we now have a really, really good, mature OKR system across the company used by every department. Other influences, um, I always go back to first principles, um, something that Elon Musk talks a lot about. And I think that is also really helpful um, when you take a step back and not just blindly copy what is being done, but go back to the problem you're trying to solve and then look at different solutions that are out there or potentially come up with your own solution. So uh, I I would say essentialism and working from first principles are are the two biggest influences of how I I work on a day-to-day basis. If you could go back to the beginning of Unibuddy, what would you do differently or where would you consider taking a different approach? In the beginning, from a a building perspective, you don't want to start building microservices. And the reason for that is because you, you don't know where your boundaries are in the beginning unless you have quite a mature product. But if, you're, if it's a new startup and there's a lot of uncertainty and MVPs, you don't actually know those boundaries and you're going to probably end up building services around the wrong boundaries, which becomes a bigger mess or could be a bigger mess than the monolith. But some things you do know that um, it would make a good service. For example, the first thing I would decouple is an authentication service. I think pretty much any product you, you build will need some sort of authentication or login. You can build that on, at a, as a service from the beginning. So I, I wouldn't go and go and couple that authentication into the monolith if I were building this again. Now we're having to pull that authentication out into a service because that's part of our monolith right now. Other things could be things like a configuration service where you can um, basically keep a registry of all your services and all your different environments like QA staging as well. So those things basically would help you transition to microservices in the future, which gives you a good platform to do that. Second thing I would do is focus on infrastructure early on. It's important to keep in mind the ratio of engineers you need working on infrastructure and scalability versus the engineers that are working on new product. And for a long time, we had just 90% of our engineers working on new product, new features, and we were always severely under-resourced on people that are working on infrastructure, fixing technical debt, working on scalability, reliability, and those things. So what I've learned is that a good ratio um, you want to start off with at least is one is to five, and then see how that scales. You know, right now we have one is to 10, uh, which is why we're aggressively growing our infrastructure team or augmenting it with existing product engineers. But knowing that from the beginning would have really helped. Um, If you always maintain that one is to five ratio, it will help you um, ensure you have really good scalability um, as you grow. That's really interesting. I, I like that a lot. You're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world. They really think it's going to be a game changer. What advice do you give that person having gone down this road a bit? The question I keep asking myself is, if I'd known this is what you had to do to get here, would I have done it in the beginning? Because, you know, as, as anyone knows who's done it, it's, it's, it's quite emotionally draining it's um, it's mentally tough. It's full of lows. It's full of highs. You question why you're doing it every week. And I think often it's better to not know what you're going to go through when you start a company. And it's better to just start and organically take it from there. Because if someone told me you're going to have to go through all of these things, it might have been actually, you know, off-putting or, or demotivating for me. So, so my advice would be is to, to not have like an expectation or attachment 
about where it's going to end up and rather just start like starting is the hardest part start and organically respond um, to what happens and take it from there every entrepreneur will have their own journey and every company has their own journey and the only way you're going to do it is by is by walking through it yourself and 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 then take it from there so i just think sometimes it's better not to 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 know what's coming at you and and take it in your stride in a way that's solid advice well commission thank you for being on code story today thank you for being on the show and telling the product creation story of unibuddy thanks noah really enjoyed it and this concludes another chapter of code story Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Labhart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. Support the show on patreon.com slash codestory for just five to ten bucks a month. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options in stock, ready to take home today. We carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on. Shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest Menards. You can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on Menards.com. Save big money.